Well, it's a pleasure to be here. And um, I've got some interesting things to show you today. We're going to do, we have a two-parter. Um, first, we're going to take a look at a new deck uh, that looks into insights into the experience that our acne patients have with their disease um, and the experience they have with us as practitioners. Are we doing a good job or a bad job? We get to get our report card today uh, from 400 sufferers. Um, and then, uh, really quickly, we're going to go over the Axone deck and see if we can apply some of the tips that we learned from the Insight deck to how we're going to be utilizing uh, therapy on our patients in the future. Okay, so we're going to start off with the Insights deck. And what's important about this deck is that, you know, obviously we're care, we care about how our patients feel. We want them to be satisfied. We want the medications that we gave them to work, but we also want them to be satisfied with their visit, with the overall experience they have. We want to make their acne better, but also their psychological state better because we know that these patients are suffering a great deal from their acne. But we also have a more selfish motive involved, which is that nowadays, every word that you say in the privacy of the exam room could end up on a blog or a website in the very near future. Have you looked at your grades to see? Every day I get something in my inbox telling my, my grade on one of these sites. I've learned not to open them because it just pisses me off. Nine times out of 10, it has nothing to do with me and my care. It has to do with a billing issue, or they're angry with how long it took to get an appointment, so it doesn't really do me any good. But what you don't want to have end up on these sites is something about your care in particular. Because I think when people read a survey and somebody got one star because the receptionist was rude, I think they probably get that that's not you. Um, specifically, although obviously you should have taken care of that receptionist, so it reflects on you, but your care is going to end up here. So you want to make the patient happy because you want to make the patient happy, but also because you want to make you happy in the long run, right? So that's what this deck looks into. It looks into how our patients feel about uh, what has happened to them in the past and how much better we have made their lives through our care. So to better understand their treatment expectations, perhaps, their expectations are a little bit too high, right? And to investigate their satisfaction with the dermatologist. This entire deck says dermatologist should actually say derm provider clearly uh, because acne and rosacea is much better managed uh, by you guys than it is by most dermatologists in, in my experience. So the data that I'm going to show you uh, is based on a large anonymous online patient survey. Um, and they divided the patients who answered the survey into four specific groups, hopefully groups that will resonate with you. So we have our adult females, we have teenage girls, teenage boys, and then finally the parents of the young acne patients, the 12 to 15-year-olds, 100 in each group. And the patients had to have had concerns about or treatment for acne within the last six months, so it has to have been recent. Um, they had to have 5 to 25 pimples on their face, although this was self-reported, so you know, could be right, could be wrong, who knows. Um, have to have seen a primary care physician and a derm practitioner for their acne. So they're not newbies, they're not acne virgins, they've been to see people, and they have to have used also a non-prescription and a prescription product at least once in order to enter into the survey. So these are a fairly uh, educated group of people in terms of their visits for, for their acne. 
So knowing that and seeing these groups, are these groups resonating with you? Do you think that, that there's going to be a difference, for example, between the teenage girls and the teenage boys? Show of hands for yes. All right. How about adult women versus the teenagers? Difference? Yes. Okay. And then the parents, of course, have a completely different agenda than do frequently their teenagers, right? So it's going to be interesting to see the difference between them. So we're going to start looking at the patient perspective, how they feel about their acne. And we're going to see several videos as we go along uh, during this presentation. And this is the if first. I have a breakout, it's, I'll definitely reschedule things. I'll plan dates for the week after. Mm, yeah. Or I'll sit, if it's, scar if it's over here, I'll make sure that I get to the bar or restaurant early and sit in a position where he can't really see. Because sometimes they're so big that it changes my profile. I start sweating and I kind of wipe it off and then I feel like the acne and I go, oh crap, people are looking at me now. And For me, it's like really a problem. Like I don't even keep a mirror in my locker because I'm just like, I'd rather just not even pay attention to it than Aww. like look at myself all the time. So I, I don't know about you, but I got a couple of things for, from that video. Um, I thought the interesting thing was the no mirror in the locker. Have you ever had a patient tell you that they cover their mirrors at home so that they can't see their reflection? Very, quite sad. And they all seem relatively well adjusted, yet severely impacted by their disease, right? So the first woman who said that she sits on a different side of the gentleman that she's uh, going on a, what sounds like a blind date with so that he doesn't see her zits, she seemed otherwise completely well-adjusted. So I, I don't think that these were people who were overemphasizing how much this meant to them. So this is sort of no surprise. We all know that our patients come in um, quite unhappy. Who do you think of those four groups is the most troubled, though? If they, those four groups were asked, how troublesome do you find your acne, one being not troublesome at all, and five being, wow, severely troubled, who do you think shows the worst the, the, this troubles me the most. So let's start off with the parents of the young kids. You have to only vote once. Parents of the young kids, who votes for that? The teenage girls. Okay, teenage boys. And adult women. All right, so adult women wins, followed by teenage girls, teenage boys, and then the parents. Um, this is how the patients felt about it, the, the responders felt about it. So absolutely even Stephen, and all of them very impacted, all of them approaching very troublesome. And I would have said exactly what you said. And I think it, it, we can't have a discussion in a group this small, so I'll tell you what I think. If anybody wants to add, please feel free to. But I think um, in, in my practice, at least, the adult females are very vo vocal. And they, they tell me right off the bat what it means to them. The teenagers are usually, you know, head down, eyes down, looking at how the chair works and stuff and paying no attention, especially the boys. I also find that teenage boys tend never to, often not to tell the truth about how much it bothers them because it's not cool to be bothered by your acne. That's especially the case if mom's in the room and really especially the case if a baby brother or a friend is in the room, that, uh, you, you're going to get nothing out of that guy because he's never going to say that it bothers him. Also, sometimes with mom brings the kid in kicking and screaming, and mom has told him, if you go to see her, if you go to see him, you're going to get better. So in some way, he doesn't want to get better. 
you know, because then his mom's going to be right. So he's never going to admit that, or frequently will not admit that it bothers him that much. Here we have an anonymous online survey where that teenage boy was, could feel free to say what was really on his mind, and quite surprising, don't you think? So they are bothered. And maybe they're hearing what you're saying, they just don't acknowledge that they're hearing what you're saying. So how do they cope with their acne? Well, in this survey, it was pretty much what you've seen regularly. They pop or squeeze, eh, right? We try to teach them not to do that. Follow a strict facial cleansing regimen. That's not going to do much, right? So you're going to have a nice, clean face with acne on it. Um, I don't think we, uh, unless the, the soap is medicated, that's not really going to get you very far. So the first two things that they did to, to try to fix their acne were either unhelpful or actually causing more problems. Uh, the girls tended to cover it up with makeup. The boys tended to cover it up with a baseball cap. They, many of them felt that changing their diet was going to be helpful. Um, and then others thought that wearing clothing that would draw attention away from their face would be helpful. Um, I don't know. You know, sometimes the, if you wear like a bright scarf or bright jewelry, it brings more attention to your face. But these were the, their coping mechanisms. And obviously, much better we give them a medication to get rid of their acne than them having to cope with it in such a fashion. 85% of people said that they had used uh, two or more over-the-counter products before they came to see us. So, and many of them, 28%, said they had used more than four. So if you figure the products to be about $15 a piece, maybe even 20, we're talking 60 to $80 that they spent on stuff that didn't work before they came to see us, which is enough to pay for our visit and, our co and the copay for the medication, right, that's actually going to work. So I think part of Allergan's reason for commissioning this study, which obviously has nothing to do with their particular products, it's unbranded, is to make sure that people are realizing and that we're realizing how much money is being spent uh, overall on products that, that sort of really have no chance of working, at least in the moderate uh, to severe acne patients. So clearly we can't discuss this in a group of this magnitude, but I want you to think about do you, since troublesomeness seems to be an issue for our patients, do you address it? Do you come out and ask patients how much it bothers them? I can ask you a yes or no. A yes for asking them how much it bothers them. So maybe half. And do you change, those of you who said yes, do you change your treatment based on what they answered? Yes? Yeah. And that makes sense, right? So I do the same thing. I don't do a 1 to 5. I do a 1 to 10. I'm from Brooklyn, I have to preface this. Uh, one is what acne, and 10 is get this crap off my face or I'm going to kill you, and I actually say those words. So five is somewhere in the middle, um, and I find it helpful to ask the kid separately from the parent if possible, because what I really love to find out is that when they're completely different, when the kid says one and mom says 10, what's going to happen? I'm giving them a prescription for medication. Kid's not going to want to use it. Mom's going to want them to use it. She paid for it. She paid for the visit. So every day, did you put on your medicine, right? Mom needs to be worried about whether Junior is using drugs and smoking cigarettes and having safe sex, not about whether or not he's putting on his topical acne product if he's a one, especially if he has mild acne and is, has a normal... Uh, social life and is doing well in school and is not psychologically impacted by his acne. 
So sometimes the way I adapt my treatment is if he's a one, I need to have more of a conversation with mom than I do with him, right? And we need to sort of figure out if we really want to treat him at all. And if he's a one, is he ever going to use his medication? And the, the, the opposite viewpoint is if he, if he or she is a 10, I could probably give her a pill and two topicals and a wash, and she's going to use all of them, right? So it's very helpful to know on a scale of 1 to 10. It's an easy question, very quick, um, and you can move forward from there. OK, so now let's look at their expectations. What did they expect to find when they came to see us? experts on skincare, so they'll know like all the options. Even if they may not give me all the options, they still know them, and they're recommending what they think works best for me or will work best for me. Dermatologists are just more technical. Like they're more that's their specialty. That's what they do. So you, you would hope that they would know, you know how to <laughs> use something and tell you how to use something. So you would hope that they would know what to do, but also tell you how to use something. And that's important because you're going to see when we get our report card that we didn't necessarily succeed in, in all of those ways. What motivated them to come to see us? Very much like what you just saw in the movie, that they said that derms are specialists and they know what they're doing. Um, what they were doing wasn't working. Uh, the, that we're more aware of more things than the primary care physician is, so hopefully we can do a better job. And the last thing is the expectation that we are going to examine their skin more thoroughly. In another study that Allergan commissioned, they found that 42% of patients said that we didn't spend enough time examining their skin meticulously. Oh, I'd like to suggest that the patient in whom I spend the least amount of time examining their skin is an acne patient. By the time I have walked in the door, I've already assessed, I'm done, right, aren't you? How long does it take you to decide, all other things being equal, what you would have treated them with? Seconds? Less than 10 seconds, yes? Almost everybody? And the rest of the meeting, the rest of your interaction is figuring out if what you want to do fits into what they want to do. If it's going to be covered by insurance, if there are one, if there are 10, right? So most of our visit is spent fixing what we already knew we wanted to do. But they think that we're going to walk up to them and examine their skin meticulously. The one thing I learned from this survey and the previous survey that I was mentioning is to look at the skin meticulously. My patients are so much happier. So the light goes on and the magnifying glass comes out, just as if I was looking at a suspicious lesion on the skin. And I spend 10 seconds looking and palpating their face. Frankly, while I'm deciding what I need to shop for, because I'm making dinner that night, right? I am not thinking about anything. This is just a show. But it works, and they're much happier because I've done this. It doesn't help me at all medically. I've already, <laughs> I'm already done. But they find it, uh, I think, very helpful, and they feel secure that I'm doing what's right for them. So if you take away nothing else, I strongly recommend that you start examining them, examining them more thoroughly. So this is our report card. How did we do? Yellow is us, orange is PCPs, and blue is both of us, right? So the first one is better knowledge and discussion of treatment options. We did that. Uh, selecting the treatment specifically for them, we did that. We examined their skin not quite so well, but at least better than the PCPs did. 
we didn't do so well setting up expectations. We didn't do so well telling them how to use the product, what that guy said that we were going to be able to do. Um, we didn't do very well on explanation of side effects either. And the worst, the worst part, grade on our report card was listening to their concerns and their treatment goals. So all you have to do is say, so, um, you know, what have you used in the past? What do you, what do you envision? What, why are you here? What do you envision me doing? And you can do that at the same time you're doing your 10-second review, if you'd like, with a magnifying glass. Give you something to think about if you're not cooking dinner that night. Um, to have a little conversation. So we're not doing very well on the touchy-feely stuff, and we're not doing very well on the examination itself. And 78% of patients felt that the education that they got was hugely important. They wanted to know what caused their acne. I don't think they mean, you know, the inflammatory cascade. They mean, is something they're doing making it worse? Should they be drinking more water? Everybody says that nowadays, right, thanks to the bottled water industry. Are they, is their diet contributing? Is there something that they could be doing to make things better? And they also said it's important for them to understand why their drug that we're using is working. Again, probably not that toll-like receptor 2 is decreased on the surface of monocytes, but rather I'm giving you this drug because it helps to clear out your pores. And then the next time when you come back, we'll use an antibiotic to kill the bacteria. And now we're using an anti-inflammatory. You know, sort of give them the, the concept of what they're doing. And you'll see that they said that if I understood this better, I would be more likely to use it. They're also willing to pay for this stuff. Often, I happen to be a brandaholic, and often I'm giving a, a lecture where I'm specifically recommending a brand, branded product. And many of the providers will say to me, well, my patients will never pay for that stuff. The copay is too high. Well, this slide shows that you don't know until you take it out for a spin what people are willing to spend. That 33% of patients were willing to spend more than, more than $50 on their copay. So take it out for a spin, see what they say. You know, if you really truly believe that this expensive medication is better for them, explain to them why it is and see what happens. You might be surprised. So what about setting expectations and ensuring their satisfaction? I would definitely want my dermatologist to, you know, have some form of personal interest in me, kind of uh, get to know me uh, better uh, as to knowing my, my diet, my, you know, hygiene habits, all that. So you just really get down to, uh, uh, you know, fixing my skin and, uh, yeah, finding the best solution for it and, you know, finding, uh, the uh, like, you know, a whole bunch of different ways for it to work and giving me a little bit more freedom to kind of choose what I want. Wow. In four and a half minutes. I can do that. No problem. That's a tall order, right? That, that was a lot of stuff. And I don't think it's even possible to accomplish that on one visit. But certainly over time, that's something that we could do. And we can short circuit all of them. I heard personal interest, get to know me better. I guess he meant, like, does he play sports? Does he wear a football helmet? The kind of stuff that's going to interfere with treatment. Um, diet and hygiene was mentioned, and patients ask about that a lot now. Personally, I think that could probably be saved for the second visit because I've got so much information to impart on the first. Um, and then freedom to choose. And that's going to come up over and over and over again uh, as we move forward in this survey. All right, so how long did the patients think 
that it was going to take for them to get better and how soon were they going to discontinue their therapy, right? So how long would it take for you to discontinue your therapy if you didn't think you were getting better? Was it one week, two weeks, a month, three months, or six months? What was the number one answer? A week? Two weeks? A month? Anybody say three months? Nobody's going to wait three months to get better. So you have to remember that these people were not derm virgins, right? They had seen us before. So a whole, the most common answer was one month, which is not bad. There were still a handful of people who expected one week and two weeks, which is obviously our failure. No acne patient should walk out the door thinking they're going to be better in two weeks. I think it also suggests, when, when is your usual return visit? One month? Six weeks? Eight weeks? More. Okay. So this suggests that one month is not a bad time to bring them back, just to make sure that they're doing what you said, that they're not having side effects, right, and issues that are keeping, that they filled the stupid prescription to begin with, right? That sometimes happens. So, you know, maybe one month, is a, if you have room, is a more reasonable time to bring them back making sure that they realize that you don't expect them to really be better, that it's just a, a time to come back and reinforce things. We also know that Steve Feldman showed us what he ended up calling the white coat syndrome, that patients go home gung-ho about using their medications, and after two weeks, they start to slack off. And then one week before the visit, they say, oh, my gosh, I have to go back. I better start using the medicine again, right? So if you're seeing them in one month, they had two weeks and one week of good behavior. At least they used it for three out of four weeks. If you extend out to two months, you're, you're getting less and less uh, uh, compliance. Food for thought again. So this is the, the question was asked, how much involvement would you like to have with the dermatologist in deciding your acne treatment? So remember the guy said, if I had the freedom to choose, I would be more willing to, to use the medication. They want to be involved in the decision-making process. Although one of the women did or will say in a moment, I can't remember which movie we saw already, um, that we're the experts. And she doesn't, uh, you're going to see it. If she read something in a magazine, direct-to-consumer advertising, and she comes in and she says to you, I want EpiDuo, and you say, okay and you start writing the prescription, she doesn't like that either. She wants you to argue with her a little bit. You know, she wants you to involve her in the decision, but if it's not right, she wants you to tell her it's not right. So they want to be involved in deciding what, what we're going to use. Do you do that? Do you let them play a role? Sometimes you can say, well, I have a cream or an ointment, you know, a gel or a cream. Um, sometimes, you can, sometimes people say no pills. Right? Sometimes people are, are uh, like the pills. I have a, a relatively quick way, I think, to say this. I tell them that I think that all patients and all, all providers, for that matter, can be separated into two groups, snails and sledgehammers. Snails try this. If it doesn't work, they try that. You know, and they slowly progress up the ladder. And sledgehammer, which is my personal bend as both a patient and a physician, is I smack you over the head with a sledgehammer, which is everything that I could possibly throw at you, and then we back off. It might hurt a little bit, and in this analogy, hurt would be side effects, uh, but 
at least you'll get better faster. When I phrase it this way, I find that virtually everybody wants to be a sledgehammer uh, because I've implied that the snail is a weenie. <laughs> so they don't want to be known as a weenie anymore. So they sort of give me permission to use more medications, more prescriptions with a higher uh, side effect threshold. And then they have played a role in this decision-making process. And it doesn't take much time at all. If I just say I want prescription A and they go, yes, to me that's not involvement. But when you're involved in the decision, like you are part of making that decision. So you're more inclined to use the product because it was also your choice, not just the doctor giving you something. So here is the understanding part. Would you be more likely to stick with the prescription treatment your dermatologist prescribed for you if he or she involved you in the decision process? Everybody across the board said yes. I would have thought going into this that parents, yes, adult females, yes, but not so much the teenagers, but I would have been wrong. The teenage boys also wanted to have a role, as in the movie they, he portrayed. My derm follows up. She's like, so the stuff I gave you last time, she remembers. I mean, she has her chart in front of her, but, you know, she brings it up. She asks, like, is it actually working? Like, how does it work? How is it working? What is it actually doing for you? So, again, we can't really have a discussion about this, but I'd like you to think about all of these things um, to help you in, your, in, in making your patients happy and in increasing the efficacy of their treatments. There was a very large, uh, there was a publication of a very large questionnaire that was given to acne patients. It was about 25 questions, um, obviously too long for you to administer in your office, but they have shrunk it down to the three questions that seem to have the most statistical significance in terms of patient satisfaction um, and that was, on a scale of 1 to 10, how troublesome, as we said before. What is your current skin care regimen, cleaning and such? The patients really want you to ask about that and really want to be educated about it. And how much time and effort are you willing to put into treating your acne? So apparently these three questions um, were the best of the lot in helping you to decide how to, how to take care of your patients and making them feel as if they were part of the whole process. So you might want to consider incorporating them into your discussion with the patient. Perhaps the answer would be the Charlie Brown teacher answer, you know, wah, 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 while you're thinking about what you're going to make for dinner. Because the, it, it's more the fact that they were able to get it out and get it off their chest and to think that you were really sitting there and caring and absorbing what they were saying than it is the actual answer itself. You could also put it into your Question, patient questionnaire so that perhaps your MA or the patient herself could have filled it out already. So in summary, for this deck, don't get too excited. We have a small deck to follow. Most acne patients are troubled regardless of their gender. They visit us um, because they think that we know what we're doing and that we will impart our knowledge to them, and we're not necessarily doing that all that well. And involving the patient in the management across the board seemed to improve patient compliance and therefore efficacy and therefore satisfaction. So that's the end of that deck. My darling Charlie, thank you. He's on the ball. Um, so I'd like to, uh, to 
actually thank Allegan for bothering to spend the money on these kind of surveys to help us better understand the treatment of our patients and providing us with a completely unbranded deck so they didn't stack this in, in Allegan's favor uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Mm -hmm. So now we're going to talk quite briefly about Axone, and I know you guys have all seen uh, some of this information before. Hopefully we can apply some of the things we just learned uh, in, in this process. So. Um, before we get into the deck itself, one of the things I was thinking of when I was looking at that previous deck that would be helpful is that patients said that they wanted to know that the medications were specifically intended for them, and they also wanted to know why the stuff worked. So now if we apply that to Axone, we know that the direct-to-consumer advertising is targeting women. So your female patients, especially your adult female patients, might very well be feeling sort of embraced by the concept of this medication. Also, it's not an antibiotic. It doesn't kill P. acnes. So people who are worried about antibiotic resistance right, might be happy with the concept of this not creating any more ecological mi uh, mischief. So those are sort of the things I was thinking about vis-a-vis -vis the previous death. Okay. So we have to start with the bad news first. You know, that's the way slide decks work now, branded slide decks. So the bad news, though, is actually good news in this case. This is the important safety information that's in the package insert that the patient gets to see. And the first is the concern, the hematologic concerns. And this was a concern because, as we know, oral dapsone can be a bad actor, right? It can cause hemolysis, hemolytic anemia, especially in patients who are G6PD deficient. So if you read the fine print here, it ends up saying, but that doesn't happen when it gets used topically. So there were uh, uh, quite a few patients specifically recruited into the study who were G6PD deficient just to make sure that topically applied uh, Dapsone did no harm, and indeed it did not. This last statement here that there were some mild changes is just in keeping with what happens when you follow a CBC over time and was not a, a cause for concern. So. It is safe to use in patients who are, even in patients who are G6PD deficient. This was important because when Allergan first acquired this drug, um, actually before they acquired the drug from QLT, a Canadian company, uh, when QLT was trying to get this through the US FDA, the FDA said, okay, but you have to do a blood test first. Can you imagine having to do a G6PD blood test on every patient before you gave them a cream? How would that fly? Not very well, right? So they got rid of that by doing another study. So we're not concerned about that anymore. Also, because of the hematologic effects, you wouldn't want to combine dapsone with dapsone, right? And you wouldn't want to combine it with antimalarials, and you wouldn't want to combine it with Bactrim, uh, 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 all trimethoprim, because their hemolytic effects could be combined, right? Theoretically. But Diane Tibetot showed us in a study that if you smear 5% axone gel on chest, back, arms, and face twice a day after a steady state has occurred after 25 days, the amount of dapsone that is in the bloodstream of that patient is 100-fold less than a single 50-milligram oral dose of dapsone which, by the way, does not cause hemolytic anemia, even in people who are profoundly G6PD deficient. So you've got several layers of protection. 
chances are good that the patient isn't G6PD deficient. If they are, 50 milligrams wouldn't harm them. This is 100-fold less, and it was being applied chest, back, face, arms, right? So, you know, being concerned about combining that with oral Dapsone or Bactrim or with uh, anti-malarials is probably over-the-top cautious, in my opinion. Peripheral neuropathy has been reported with oral Dapsone, has not been reported with uh, Axone. Skin reactions, nasty ones, TEN, Stevens-Johnson, have been reported with oral, have not been reported with topical Dapsone. And the most common AEs we're going to see in detail in a few moments. Have you heard about the interaction between benzoyl peroxide and Axone? Yes? Hands up? Most of the time, I heard about this from competitors, the, the reps for competing products. Um, it's a, a gigantic mountain made out of something that's even smaller than a molehill. Benzoyl peroxide is an oxidizing agent. If you put it on top of anything that is oxidizable, it will oxidize. When axone oxidizes, it turns a yellow-brown color. So it's not the patient who is getting stained. It's the axone that's getting stained. So if you get the yellowish-brown color, all you have to do is brush it off, or at the very worst, wash it off. It always means that both products were over-applied, that you used too much. It does not happen when you use a benzoyl peroxide wash followed by topical axone. Um, and it comes off. The FDA required them to say this line with resolution in four to 57 days. It sounded as if it took 57 days for it to come off the skin. No, no, no. There was one guy who didn't bother to tell anybody until his visit on day 57, at which point he said, not for nothing, as we say in Brooklyn, but the past 56 days, every time I put this product on with my benzoyl peroxide, I turned this yellow-brown color. The, the investigator said, well, don't do that in the future. He said, okay, and it didn't happen anymore, right? So that's not lasting 57 days. It goes away if you wash your face, and it doesn't stain hair or clothing either. Okay, so now let's look at the phase three trials, okay, which are to uh, look at efficacy primarily but also safety. So there were two identical studies, which is the desire of the FDA to have two separate studies to assess both the safety and the efficacy, a nice big study of 3,010 patients who were randomized in a one-to-one -one, uh, uh, variation into vehicle gel twice a day or the Dapsone gel twice a day. And this is looking at the patient demographics to begin with. As you can see, it's 50-50 goyles and boys. The mean age was 19 across the board. Most of the patients were Caucasian. Their, uh, their acne severity scale was primarily right there in the middle with mild, um, but there were a whole bunch, uh, with moderate, I'm sorry, but there were quite a few milds as well. I skipped the preceding slide, skipped over it too fast. The preceding slide said that the patients had to have 20 to 50 inflammatory or 50 to 100 and 50 to 100 non-inflammatory lesions in order to qualify for the study. And indeed, they had 30 and 48. Now, rather than just go on with that, let's just think about that. Would you leave the house with 30 inflammatory acne lesions on your face, right? None of us could go to work, truly, right? Your white coat can be a little dingy, you can be having a bad hair day, but you can't have a face covered with zits in our business. Just can't go to work. 
So this is a lot of acne. So here's clinical success. Now, clinical success in acne studies and in psoriasis studies and in eczema studies these days are defined always as clear or near clear. If you started off as severe and you went all the way to mild, treatment failure, right? If you started off at mild and ended up at near clear, treatment failure. So it's a very high bar. So it's not surprising that after two smears a day for 12 weeks, it, wasn't, it was 41%, nice high number, but not quite as high as maybe you would have assumed it would be. I want to ask you, though, if you think that clear is a reasonable marker for acne studies or for eczema or for psoriasis. Do you expect any one of those diseases to be clear at the end of 12 weeks? Isn't there some residua? Is an acne patient ever clear until their biological clock does its thing and they don't have acne anymore. I think clear is a pie-in-the-sky crazy goal that we know can't happen. I would like to see mild or near clear as an endpoint of an acne study because that's what our patients would be happy with, especially if they started off with 20 to 50 and 50 to 100 inflammatory and non-inflammatory lesions. Having said that, 41% pretty good number considering all those things. So let's look over on the right, the combined group, the combination of the two studies. And you notice, as you will notice throughout this slide deck, uh, that the vehicle did darn well. Vehicle in orange, drug in pink, right? Rather than to just pretend that that's not on the slide, I always like to address it. The patient said, the thing I hate the most about my acne, number one is the inflammatory lesions, number two is the comedonal lesions. Don't know why that is. Maybe it's because they're tender, red, harder to cover with makeup, uh, bigger. So even if you have makeup on, you can still see the lumpy, lumpy bumpiness. But they really hate the inflammatory lesions. So this is what happens in the upper uh, left-hand corner is the inflammatory lesion reduction over time. And the upper right is non-inflammatory. And at the bottom is the combination of the two. So as you can see, over time, both the drug and the vehicle doing better and better and better and better, right, as you would expect. The asterisk represents statistical significance between the two. So the drug itself was statistically significantly superior to the vehicle at six weeks in inflammatory, 12 weeks in non-inflammatory, and eight weeks in the total lesion count. So the drug was statistically significantly better than the vehicle, but the vehicle did, again, quite well and never plateaued, did it? Usually the vehicle plateaus and eventually stops working. So, you know, I'm not supposed to speculate as to what this means, so I won't. But, you know, to my way of thinking, the vehicle is adding something to this particular product. And furthermore, I don't care. As long as I'm getting, what is that number, 58% reduction in inflammatory lesions, I don't care if it's the vehicle or the active, right? I just want the product to work which it does. And better, as you can see, in inflammatory lesions than it does in non-inflammatory. But the patients are more bothered by their inflammatory lesions. OK, what about side effects? Well, as with all acne studies, side effects were defined as erythema, peeling, dryness, and oiliness. Erythema intended to be worse erythema as an AE. As you can see here, the erythema actually got better with time 
but because erythema was listed as a possible adverse event, this is included as a side effect, but the patients got better. Same thing with oiliness. It was supposed to be a side effect, but there was less oiliness with time, which is kind of a good thing, even though it's expressed as an adverse event. So the patient found themselves to be less red and less greasy. Dryness, just sort of not capturable. It was so low, as well as peeling. So a very well-tolerated product. So the key takeaways from the um, phase three trial is one, there was no worsening at week four. That's important because lots of acne patients are under the impression that they'll get worse before they get better, and there was no evidence that that was the case, um, and that they saw continued improvement over the 12-week course. That the, I would add that the vehicle did darn well, and I don't care. Tolerability was very, very good. So lastly, we're going to look at this, I'm sorry, second to lastly, uh, this, this data that I just presented separated by gender. So they went back and they looked at the very same stuff I just showed you, and as we recall, it was 50-50 boys and girls, right? In these next couple of slides, girls are pink, boys are in blue. And in this case, vehicles on the left, Dapsone's on the right. And as you can see, the women in the study did considerably better, statistically significantly better. That p-value is 0.0003 for the active ingredient. And the vehicle... The, the relative difference between the vehicle and the Dapsone are absolutely neck and neck, right? Again, that vehicle, in my opinion, is doing something. Um, but the women did better than the boys. And here we're looking at inflammatory, non-inflammatory, and total lesion count. Again, girls in pink, boys in blue. The lower the bar, the lower the, uh, the, the graph, the better they did. And you can see the two pink lines at the bottom, which represent the, uh, the active and the vehicle, and the boys on the top. So... Again, in all lesion types, the women did better than the men. So go ahead and shout out a reason in your mind that that might be the case. Compliance. Compliance. Everybody says the same thing. That's why I ask, because I know the answer. Um, you know, that's what we all think. Well, the girls actually used it. So of course they did better. Well, first of all, it might interest you to know that there is no study ever that has demonstrated in acne that girls use their medicine more often than boys do. That is our opinion, and I'd swear on my opinion that that's true, but there is, no, there is no data that shows that boys are less compliant than girls in their acne treatment. Does anybody believe that? I don't believe it either, but there is no data. On the other hand, in, in reference to this, if the girls use their medicine so much more frequently than the boys did in order to do this much better, don't you think there would be more side effects in the girls than the boys? Right? And there wasn't. So here we see adverse events. Again, boys in blue, girls in, in pink. Erythema, oiliness, dryness, peeling. If anything, the boys had a little bit more uh, side effects than the girls did. So it doesn't appear to be strictly compliance issue. There's something else going on. What it is, I haven't the faintest idea. Maybe it's because the adult women with acne with the acne down here are inherently different, and there was enough of them in the study to swing it in one direction or the other. No, no. But that's why the direct-to-consumer advertising shows a bunch of pictures of women based on this. And the patients who come into me with that article cut out are usually saying, you know, I'm a woman, this is a woman, I want this. 
because I feel as if it's addressing my particular issues. So again, getting back to the previous deck, I think that's an important uh, thing to, uh, to remember. Just to show you a couple of before and after pictures uh, of an adult woman, a teenager, and a teenage girl of color. Uh, and you can see a dramatic resolution in the lesions, but also the absence of post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation. Okay, now just a couple slides on the long-term safety study so you feel a little bit safer with all of this. This was a 12-month safety study that occurred after the pivotal trials I just showed you. Uh, 506 patients entered into the study. Again, they're over the age of 12. They had to have at least 20 inflammatory lesions at baseline, and 10 of them had to be on the face. They were allowed to treat face, chest, back, and arms, but they had to be treating the face uh, twice a day. And they were followed uh, at the protocol, as you can see on the bottom. And after the first three months, if it was deemed necessary by their provider, they were allowed to add concomitant acne products. This is very standard for long-term studies because you can't expect somebody to stay on a drug for 12 months if it's not effective enough, right? So they were allowed to add other drugs. And in fact, 22% uh, of them actually did use concomitant drugs. Just as an aside, when they looked at the folks who did and the folks who did not, they were in the same place at 12 months. Didn't seem to matter. So obviously, they all, since it's mostly a safety study, they looked at the AEs, and they found that there were 13.8% of patients had application site AEs. 9.5 of them were judged to be related to the drug, but only 2% discontinued uh, due to these side effects. So there were very few. There were, there were five serious AEs, but they were deemed unrelated, and nobody discontinued from a serious AE. And most importantly, the folks who were in the study who were profoundly G6PD deficient did not have any laboratory abnormalities. So you can completely, in my opinion, put that concern to rest. Here's the efficacy arm of the long-term study. And as you can see in pink, the reduction in inflammatory lesions. In orange, the reduction in non-inflammatory lesions. So this is really not your drug that you go to for someone who has a face full of comedones with no inflammatory lesions. On the other hand, we know that now our theory about how acne starts, we, we now believe that there's inflammation before the microcomedone. So there is some evidence that maybe it could prevent the development of even non-inflammatory lesions in the future. So the take-home message is that Axone is the only acne treatment that we have with Dapsone topically. It does not contain benzoyl peroxide. Why is that there? Well, our patients really kind of hate the staining and the bleaching of fabric that they get with benzoyl peroxide, so this is something you could put on back, chest, and arms and not have to worry about that. Certainly worked well, worked all the way through uh, to 12 weeks in the, in the uh, original trial and the pivotal trials, and 12 months, as you can see here in the long-term safety trial. I neglected to point out that this three-month time frame is really the end of the pivotal trial. And as you can see, patients continued to do even better with time. So it worked well and worked for a long period of time and very <clears throat> is very, very well tolerated. So that's the end of the promotional deck. And I'd be happy to take any questions you have about either deck. And thank you very much for your attention and enjoy the rest of your meeting.